Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 50 of the Close Knit Podcast, and this week I spoke to Mandy Cordell of Cordell Studio. Mandy is someone I have admired for so long. Every single collection she's designed has just made me swoon, and it was such a treat to bring her onto the podcast this month. She walks me all the way back to her earliest memory of working with textiles, influenced by her grandmother and her mother, who are both talented designers and sewists. As has been my line of inquiry lately, this year actually, I wanted to understand how Mandy went from altering and painting on her clothes as a kid to running a knitwear and now wovenwear clothing line, how her interest was piqued by a neighbor leading her to study fashion design and taking a class in machine knitting, which informs her garment design and making practice presently. We discussed the subtleties of machine knitwear design, fiber sourcing, and how being a values-driven brand as a concept is an evolution. Mandy talks me through her partnerships with weavers and mills in Peru and Guatemala and how these relationships have evolved over the, over the course of Cordell's existence. Listen on for our whole chat. Thanks so much for tuning in. I wanted to pause for a moment to acknowledge that this is the 50th episode of the Close Knit Podcast. 50 whole episodes. That just feels like a real milestone to me. And I just wanted to say thanks. Thank you for listening and for supporting the podcast. If you're already pledging on Patreon, I so appreciate you. And if you've enjoyed the podcast thus far, you can support the podcast to continue to exist by pledging through Patreon. Over the course of this last year, your support has helped me pay my bills, hire an editor, and offset website maintenance costs. It's been an enormous help, and it really does enable me to work on this project long-term in a sustainable way. You can find my Patreon for my website, via my Instagram, or by searching CloseKnit on Patreon. 50 freaking episodes! What a humbling joy it has been to produce this work with and for you. Your support means the world to me. It's Ani of Close Knit, and I am here with Mandy Cordell. Hi, Mandy. Hi, Ani. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's been a busy week. Lots of stuff going on in your studio and fall production and everything. Tons of things, right? Yeah. No problem, though. It's really nice to catch up with you. Yeah, I know. It was nice to see you at West Coast Craft and have you on the on the West Coast for a minute. And thank you for bringing me lunch. <laughs> oh, that was definitely not me trying to like pat myself on the back. I was just happy to see you. <laughs> um, so you're in Brooklyn though, right? That's where you normally are located. Yeah, we're in Brooklyn in Crown Heights, kind of a cool. smaller neighborhood. Did you grow up in that area or how did you end up there? No, so I grew up kind of we moved around a lot when I was a kid so Mm -hmm. mostly east coast and then midwest um but I've been in this area for about eight years now yeah okay okay cool well we're gonna get there but I want to ask you just to kind of start with what is sort of your earliest memory of doing something with textiles or fiber art um I would say so my mom is a really creative person um 
and even as kids, she was always coming up with some kind of project or, um, you know, she made a lot of our clothing. We would paint on our sweatshirts. We, um, yeah, she was really great about kind of getting us to do more hands-on crafts and projects. So I think that's probably, that would be my earliest memory. Like she would customize outfits for me and we would talk over the design and like, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, from like an early, early age. That's so cute. Imagining you like, so what it, can you talk me more through like what that co-designing process kind of looked like? Do you remember? Yeah, she actually just found um, recently a piece of paper where I had sketched out all of the outfits that I wanted. So um, yeah, there's a lot of like crude drawings with crayon of like a skirt and then some kind of matching, I don't know, top. And yeah, again, she would like kind of make a project out of it. So we would either be painting or doing something um, kind of together, like with my sister. Mm. Uh, But yeah, that's kind of how that, I guess that process went. And how did, like, does she, what's her background? Like, how did she get into clothes making and all of this? Um, So she actually, she studied business, but um, my grandmother is also, you know, really creative and a really incredible seamstress, painter, embroiderer. Um, So I think it's just kind of been like an interest, like throughout our family. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, I, you know, my grandmother, I think, sewed all of my my mother's clothes too. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it was just something that seemed normal to her to, you know, pursue those interests and, um, kind of like carry on that tradition, I would say. Totally. Yeah. That's something I hear a lot echoed in podcasts and talking to people when I teach workshops and stuff is this kind of carrying on of a family legacy, or even if it's like sort of subconscious, like they're not necessarily, like, oh, I'm actively trying to honor my grandmother or this or that. Like, it's just something that's been sort of embedded in their family's history and their family's legacy. And that seems to come up a lot. And I think that's quite special. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not something that you, like you were saying, it's more of a subconscious, um, subconscious act. Like you just see the, um, I don't know why that has like holds importance. Um, and then you just want to continue doing that for like your kids and your family. So yeah, totally. So then you're doing all this stuff in as a as like a young kid, but what kind of can you kind of take me through the steps of you just like designing clothes with your mom and painting on clothes to to Cordell as it like is today? I mean, it's a long journey, I know, but even just like kind of walking me through some of that history. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say the first sort of, um, I guess, light bulb moment was I was in high school and would go to Goodwill or different thrift stores. And a lot of times there were things that I liked, but they didn't fit me. Cause I was, I'm like a pretty petite person. So, um, yeah, being five, two, I like wanted to hem things or adjust them. Um, so I would buy things, cut them up and kind of re-sew them into different, um, different outfits. And then I didn't realize that that could actually be a job. Um, I had a neighbor that I babysat for and she worked at the, she was the Dean of the fashion department at the local design college. Um, and she brought me, she suggested that I go and watch like a senior critique that was happening at the school. Um, and I remember I like got all dressed up. I was like so nervous and went to go watch this critique and it was sort of, um, yeah, just kind of from that moment, I was kind of awestruck, like, oh, this could really be a career. And it was so inspiring to see 
other people presenting their designs. Um, so that was kind of, a, I would say, the first like iteration. And then I applied for the program. Um, and yeah, that's, I guess, the first like phase. And then um, the college that I went to, it's the design school through um, University of Cincinnati. So it's called okay. DAP. And it stands for Design, Art, Architecture, and Planning. Hmm. And they have a really awesome, it's called their co-op program, where essentially you're in school for a quarter. Now it's semesters, but you're in school for one quarter, and then you go and you work in the industry for another quarter. So half Hmm. the year, you're out in the world, like, getting real-life experience. You can jump around working for, like, a small company to a more corporate company, Um And I think that that had a pretty big impact on me as well. Like kind of seeing that I really gravitated more towards like the smaller, um, smaller companies and seeing like a little bit of everything happening, um, versus some of like the larger corporations. What were the classes like that you took there? So it was a typical, uh, like fashion design degree. So we took, you know, sewing 101, draping, um, machine knitting. That's where I started really getting interested in knitwear. Um, okay. We had a knitting machine course. And then for my thesis, I rented a knitting machine and made a lot of my final pieces using that. Okay. Um, we didn't have a really extensive, kind of like a non-existent textile program at that point. Now they actually do have some more courses offering that. Um, I would say like in terms of textiles that kind of came later for me, but yeah, I would say kind of like your typical design degree. So it's kind of like an ignorant question on my part, but how does a fashion design course differ from a textiles course? So I would say with textiles, it's more about um, learning like how the actual fiber, like it goes from fiber to fabric or like fabric manipulation Mm. in terms of screen printing or embroidery, um, spinning, weaving, knitting versus a fashion design degree would be more so like, what do you do with those final materials? Like how do you apply that Mm -hmm. to a garment? Um, And also, you know, I think textiles can be like, you're still, you still might have a client in mind, but it can go more of like a fine art path versus Mm -hmm. design is, you know, ultimately you're trying to think of like who you're designing for um, and like solving a problem too. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's interesting then that you also had like machine knitting as part of that or part of that course. Yeah. I mean, that was my favorite course. Right. I want to hear about do you can you walk me through what that what that was like? Do you remember kind of like specifically the like taking that class and having did you have a moment with that? Or was it like kind of this drawn out process of realizing that this was something you really enjoyed? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I would say like the beginning of the course, um, I had done some like hand knitting and crochet and really, really enjoyed like that kind of slower process. Um, and then getting to learn how to use the knitting machines was sort of eye opening in that you could create your own textile and the garment, like just to have so much, um, kind of control over how you could, you know, blend different yarns together and create different weights and um there's just a lot more kind of like creativity that can go into it um but yeah I mean the course it's funny I don't know if you've seen like the hand loom knitting machines yeah I've used a few like the back and forth kind of like (laughs) sound that they make (laughs) yeah 
12 or 15 of us in a small room, all like using them at the same time. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it was mostly, I, for that project, um, ended up creating this really crazy punch card that was basically, um, like I wanted to figure out a way to have like a continuous line pattern, like draw across a garment. So literally like clipped, like stapled, like five punch cards together to make one long artwork. Um, so I felt like there was just more like kind of more problem solving and things that you could do where you could manipulate the fabric and, um, yeah, it was just really fun. I think. Yeah. Something that I think about knitting machines, because I've used them a few times and been like, oh, this is so cool. There's this possibility to kind of experiment with like texture and color and design in a way that I would not feel comfortable trying to experiment with like hand knitting just because it's such a long process. It's such a like, it seems like it's such a like with hand knitting, there's something really specific that you're getting from it, right? It's like this very therapeutic, slow process. And part of the joy is the like, your physical hands are moving in this way, and they're creating an object that you can see in front of you. But then with the machine, you kind of get this opportunity to like, design something really interesting or be really experimental or do something really different than what you see in like the traditional like knitting pattern kind of world. Do you think, do you kind of feel that way? I don't know. I would totally agree with that. I think that for me, something I struggle with is being really exact. Like I Mm. loved being able to jump on the machine and just start to play around with things and see what looked exciting or interesting, like what kind of combinations of color and texture. And it's really hard to pre-plan that anyways. Like you sort of have to go through that process of experimentation. Um, And yeah, because it is a lot quicker, you, you know, don't feel like you've, spent a week on something and then you're like, crap, I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You can kind of iterate more rapidly. Yeah. 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 So you took this machine knitting class when, when, at what point in your, um, like degree was that? That was our third year. So it's a five year Mm -hmm. program because they account for the the internships, like that you're gone for half of the year. So that was in our either third or fourth year. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say like later on in your um, in your degree. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happened after that? After that, um, I think it was essentially like going into, you spent the last year working on your thesis project. So, um, I rented that knitting machine, like I was saying, um, and yeah, just started to, I also, um, I think started to get like a little bit of the entrepreneur bug and like, you know, over the summers, I had one co-op where I was in Cincinnati for most of the summer, um, and just started making garments and like went to a renegade craft fair and sold Mm. them. Um, and this was also to save up for actually at the end of that, um, that internship, I did like a month in Costa Rica where it was like a save the sea turtles thing, um, where I was volunteering. So yeah, I think that that's kind of where I was like, Oh, I want to, um, I'm interested in maybe trying to do this as like a career path or yeah. See if you could start your own line, have something kind of small of your own. Yeah. So do you feel like that, that like first iteration at Renegade, was that like your first cord? Like was that Cordell or is it? I didn't call it that. I can't even remember 
I just, you know, went with some friends. I remember we drove to Chicago and it was like pouring down rain the entire weekend. You know, it was before there was square or anything like any kind of car. Mm -hmm. So it was like only, you know, cash. There was barely any people walking around. I think I made like five sales or something like that. Um, But it was super cool. It was, I guess, the first time I saw something I made and somebody trying it on and responding to it and that interaction. But yeah, I don't, I think that was kind of, I wouldn't say that that experience made me think, oh, I definitely want to open up my own company. It just sort of happened. Right. Right. So, because it seems like the early days of Cardell were were very much knitwear. Is that true? Or, yeah. Can you tell me about those and how, how that process started and then how you kind of figured out getting it, make, like designing it and then getting it made and stuff? Yeah. So I, my first... Well, when I first moved here, I worked a year for Betsy Johnson, which was um, pretty interesting. Um, and then I I was there for, yeah, around a year. And then I worked for this company, Duri. It's a Korean woman. She um, had a really beautiful clothing line, like kind of focused more on draping. And mm. I would say like kind of cocktail evening wear. Um, but the cool thing was she put me in charge of all of the knitwear for the collection and I was doing all of the knits and sweaters for their contemporary line called underline. So mm. I was able to visit with, um, knit factories in New York, but then also start communicating with some factories overseas. Um, so kind of like that I think was my first, uh, experience, like getting knits actually manufactured, like a sample made and like what went into that yeah. process. Um, and and I think that seeing like the lack of um, American manufacturing for sweaters was sort of what struck me um, when I, when I wanted to start Cordell because it just seemed like that wasn't really available and um, mm. there was an opportunity there. Um, and in terms of finding somebody to help me make the first samples, I just contacted the yarn vendor that we worked with when I was at Dury and asked if she knew anybody and like went on this whole list of like of contacts. Um, cause there used to be some knit factories out in Queens, New York that oh. most of them have closed, but I found one lady, um, that still sort of helped to oversee like a cottage industry of knitters, like women that have like hand loom machines at home and they would do like project based work. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was yeah. how that's how like some of our knits are still made is with them. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's really cool. Yeah. So that's kind of how it yeah, a lot of like calling up people. I like went to one address and it was somebody's home. Like just a lot of funny um things <laughs> trying to track somebody down that could produce knits. Yeah. So were you kind of continuing to work full time? And then like, when did you kind of make the transition into doing Cardal full time? So I, it's been three years now that I haven't, it's been full time, like no other yeah. freelance work. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it feels really good. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would say I was working, man, like the first two years, I was essentially working full time and then working on Cordell like nights and weekends um and also doing a residency at the textile art center for one of those years so I essentially had no life outside of <laughs> but all so, I mean, good things you know that was a whole year at 
at TAC that you're a resident. Yeah, it's a nine month long, wow. like it's a nine month long program mm-hmm. with scheduled touch bases, critiques, um, kind of like extracurricular things that they plan for you, studio visits, things like that. And then uh, you have three months after that to kind of work and finalize any of your final exhibition work. And then it's displayed like that following September. Mm. And what did you make while you were there? I made four garments. Um, Mm. They were all sort of, I I just kind of wanted to allow myself to make some pieces that didn't necessarily have to be marketed and sold and worry about how would this work for production. Um, Just more experimental pieces. I made this like long sort of cobwebby looking gown and um, this sort of jacket piece where I started out on the knitting machine, like with say like 20 needles and knit like 3000 rows and then would like reduce to 19 needles. Like, so I made basically a a slow um, or a yarn that went from like a thicker, um, like was thicker and then became thinner, like over 20,000 rows of knitting. Um, So just, yeah, some kind of like weird, weird things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because when you're designing for something that needs to fit a specific body and then like a size range and then has to work in a specific way with your producers, that's like such a different, that's such a different mindset, I imagine. Yeah, it was nice to, it was also really challenging because my, the way that my brain operates is very much like a designer. So trying to push that boundary a little bit and it like allow myself to do something that was just for the sake of creativity was um, actually kind of hard. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I can understand that. And I feel like I find this with, with just hand knitting where I, I like have trouble making just pieces for the sake of, or thinking of myself as like an artist or something, because so much of what I make is very utilitarian and very much like has a purpose and needs to fit someone's body and is like for the purpose of keeping their feet warm or clothing them in some way. And it's, it like, I think there's this thing about it feeling almost kind of like frivolous or something to to have it not have a function when like, I don't feel that way when other people make beautiful work that doesn't necessarily have a utilitarian purpose. I'm like, Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that they did that. And then it's like, when it comes to me, I'm like, Oh no, no, that's not for me to do. <laughs> no, it's really hard to sort of get out of your own head. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that it's also really for me, like fun to problem solve. So I definitely really enjoy that design process, but I realize that there are so many things that you could, um, that could help that evolution if you just allow yourself to make for the sake of like creativity and it doesn't have to end up being like anything fantastic. You, I, but just that, like that process could lead to a really great idea or, um, or maybe you just like need some space to, yeah. Yeah. Just like be human. <laughs> Yeah. How have you kind of kept that balance of, of, cause you had tack going for a long, for, you know, almost an entire year while you were doing that. Um, and then I know you were out here like last year doing a, a residency for a few weeks. Like how have you kind of managed your, managed to keep that side of yourself going when you've also been like producing full time and yeah. Um, I would, well, so the tack part that um, I was just I was I was very 
busy. I had that and a freelance shop. The tack thing was nice because it was um like I was working on a creative project, but they were also mentoring me in terms of, you know, how to help with my business and things like that too. So I'd say that was kind of a little bit rolled into one. Um, but more recently, like I luckily was able to hire somebody last year and she's been like total badass. Um, so it's, you know, given me a little bit of like freedom and space to go and pursue something creative for a few weeks and know that like I have someone holding down the fort and, um, that's, yeah, that's just been awesome. Cause up until that yeah. point, it hasn't really been as possible. Um, so that's, I guess how I would say I'm like managing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know there isn't obviously not like, that's a changing answer and it's ongoing work to figure out how to balance it, particularly when it's something that, um, you've managed alongside other day jobs and other jobs in addition. That's so cool. Yeah. But I feel like you see such, I've seen, um, how, how much it's influenced and like improved our our business and our designs and everything to not be spread so thin. Like Mm -hmm. it was really scary to take that jump and not know that, okay, at least have like these freelance, um, like this income coming in to pay for my studio or whatever. Um, taking that jump and just being like, I have to bet on myself and know that, you know, it'll, it'll work out. Um, I'm just so, I'm so glad that I did that because it like almost immediately I feel like I saw improvement and like things start to yeah do a little bit better and grow um yeah yeah that's awesome I feel like that's something I don't know I go back and forth in my head about this a lot because I do think there is something to like removing the safety net and just kind of having to figure it out but I am also like an extremely risk averse person personally. So I'm like, I think I'll just, I'll just quietly be over here in the corner, just running this little podcast thing. And I will mostly just do a day job. <laughs> you know, it's scary. It's scary. I mean, I'm also hmm. just a kind of impulsive person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was like, if I don't do this, um, there's always going to be a reason not to. And yeah. also if it doesn't work out, then there are jobs that I can go back to and I'll sort it out, but yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I feel like that is a gentle and good and encouraging kind of way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, They'll, they'll always be there. Like, yeah. But maybe that drive to take that risk at that moment won't be so. Right. Lean into it. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) So I would love to hear more about, the production side of things and how that's all kind of come to be. So I like you got some, like, you know, you've, you had industry kind of internship things and then you had industry experience, like working for these other people where you got a few contacts and were able to like find your own way within kind of building your own brand. But, um, how did you take it? What is production of knitwear? What does that look like? Can you take me from like design in your brain to finished garment that gets shipped yeah so knits are I would say like they're a bit more challenging in that um unless like a lot of times what we'll do is we'll be meeting with our yarn vendors that we work with more regularly and see um you know there's some qualities that we work with 
really consistently like alpaca and cotton, things like that. Um, and we know how it's going to react, but if we have a new, a new textile, like this past fall season, there was a yarn that I really, really loved, but it had a, um, a little bit of poly in it. So we asked the mill if there's a way to replace that with something that wasn't synthetic and they were down to try it, but we didn't get to actually see what that looked like knitted up until it was in a sample. So a lot of it is kind of, um, you know, like fingers crossed, you know, knowing sort of having more experience on how something will end up um, taking shape helps, but you sort of don't know until it's in a final form, um, which can, it it really helps to have a hand loom machine here and be able to test some swatches and get a better idea. Um, But basically it it starts with sourcing that material. And then we go off of um, like spec measurements more so. Um, So yeah, it it starts with sourcing um, the yarn or the textile. And then we basically sketch um, kind of ideas for different garments and look at, um, I have like quite a few knit books with different patterns or things that we could try and they could look so different in a wool versus a cotton. So that's where it can be really Mm. exciting. Um, And then from that, sometimes we'll get like a swatch or a knit down of maybe that um, particular stitch or like maybe if it's in a certain colorway, like it's important to see how those colors are going to look together. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next phase would be basically seeing a first prototype or sample, um, making revisions and then, final garment. Yeah. I think it's really impressive the way that you've always, um, you have always sourced your materials really thoughtfully and particularly to be that, um, kind of specific about like, I feel like I see a lot of times like people are making things with wool and then it's like 20%, whatever, synthetic. And I'm always just like, ah, like we were so close. Why didn't we just get this extra bit? And I, my understanding, at least from like talking to people who have more experience with sourcing than I do, is that like, it's just really hard to get something that doesn't have synthetic in it. It's across the board. There are things that have synthetics in it. Is that kind of your experience as well? Well, so for example, that yarn I was mentioning, uh, yeah, uh, it's a yarn that we really loved. And the reason that it had a synthetic is because it was essentially like the raw fiber, but it be- was being kind of um, like shot through like a chain encasing. So uh-huh. that's what made it really light and like airy feeling. Um, and it was actually like an- having that like nylon en- encasement kept it... Um, from like pilling and there were benefits to it, but we were able to get them to switch it to a silk or there were, you know, other materials they had tried because of cost. But, um, I think when they saw the final result, it was really exciting. So, um, I think it's hard when you're smaller too. Like luckily our mill is just really lovely and we have a good relationship with them. And so they've been willing to try some things, but you know, if you're going in and you can only buy like 30 kilos of yarn or something, which is actually for us kind of a lot. Um, yeah. Then you don't have as much like power to ask for those things. But I think that's where if more and more people ask for it, you they'll see that there's an incentive to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. But the thing, the cost prohibitive part of it is interesting too. Um, just because this is kind of a double edged sword, right. Of like, you want the people to be doing it 
but you need more people to do it. But there's, yeah, there's like all these kind of like barriers to getting there. So it's something, I guess that is to say that it's something that I've admired about the way that you've always sourced materials is that it's all, it's always consistently been that there are no synthetics and like, that seems to be at a real, at, at a core of like what it is that you're doing. Um, can you kind of speak to that a little bit about like how you came to that place of like, this is how I run my line and these are my values around it? Yeah, I think it's been an evolution too. Like when we first started, I thought it was really important to do all of the manufacturing in America. And I don't necessarily think that's not important anymore. We do probably 25% of it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what sort of like shifted my thinking there is like, does it necessarily make sense to like extract these resources like alpaca, like from Peru and not produce it with experienced knitters where that's like part of their heritage and culture. And it has been for mm-hmm. so long. Um, you know, maybe it makes more sense to like have a long-term partner. Like we've been working with the same manufacturer the entire time we've been sourcing and working down there. Um, and like hopefully help them grow too and, you know, support that community as well. Like, so I think it's like always having check-in points of like what, what actually is having more of an impact. Like, I don't think necessarily one blanket statement of like, this is the way to do things is how we should operate. Um, because it's such like a, I don't know, it's such like a process and evolution, But yeah, I would say like things that like to me right now, just the amount of um, even like microfiber plastics that are like getting into our water streams and like all of these little things, like the more that and like how long synthetic materials and plastics like are going to stay around in landfills just have such a, I don't know, just reading about how half of our ocean will be filled with plastic by like 2050. Like there's so many alarming statistics that if that's like one thing we can try and make sure that it's consistent across the board. Um, Then we should definitely try and do that. We're small enough Mm -hmm. that we can do that at this point. And like, as we grow, make sure that that's like a core value that doesn't go away. Um, Yeah. I think it'd be a lot harder if you were an established company trying to start, you know, moving the, like turning around and changing things, but we're lucky that we're still at the kind of beginning stages. Right. It's kind of built into the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. How have you seen, or like, I'm really curious about the relationship that you have with the, the, is it a mill? Would you call, is is it the mill in Peru or is it, is it that the, the, the one in Guatemala? The new no, no. I want to talk about that too, but um, just specifically knitting, like the people who, because this is again. This is like another really ignorant question, but like they're they're machine knitting garments, right? Like they're not hand knitting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, some of them are hand knit. We have a couple pieces, yeah, wow. yeah for fall that are hand knit. Um, but for the most part, it's hand loom machine. Right. That's amazing to me that like anything that is commercially viable is hand knit. That's like amazing. I just can't get. I can't figure that out. <laughs> I mean, they're incredible at it too like it's just you can feel the difference and see it like they're beautiful um but yeah it's most in the the great thing about hand loom knitting and um hand knit pieces is that there's maybe there's like a cone of yarn left over but like we try to 
be really, really good with our estimates of how much materials we need. And it's not cut and sewn, as you know, like it's all knit to shape. Right, right. So that in that way, like there's very, very little, like, I wouldn't even call it waste because then those kinds of yarns will use for like sample prototype development for another style or something like that. Cool. I guess like, cause you were saying like, it's been cool to work with them from the beginning and um, to kind of grow with them. And I was curious about how they've changed and how they've grown and how your relationship has changed. I guess the reason I bring this up is that my, I understand that there are a few, like, I know of a few brands that like work with, with, with um, partners in Peru. And I, my understanding of like the landscape of it is that it has changed over the last several years of like people find, I don't know, like quote unquote, finding out about it or, or working with these different things. And I guess I'm so curious to, to understand like how, or if your relationship with them has changed or what that's looked like, or if they've grown a lot or like they're in a position where suddenly they're trying to juggle not just your project, but another project and like how that, that has all kind of looked, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Well, we, so We've been working with um, these two women since like the beginning, basically. Um, and the cool thing is they've since like split up and formed like two separate businesses. Um, oh. And one of them that we do like a bit more of our work with, she, it's been awesome to see like she's basically like started her own business now and it's like really thriving. And she does have other clients that she works with, but they're all like like minded brands and um, you know, she's really, really focused on sustainability and it's been such a good, like, I don't know, I think relationship because she'll email me and say like, Hey, I have like this yarn left over from a project. Like, could we come up with something to, you know, to use it up or like, you know, mm. I, I went to this, um, factory this afternoon and they have like this beautiful leftover cashmere alpaca blend yarn like maybe we could use it for something so mm. um I think it's just like they've grown but also because we have a really good understanding like they have an understanding of our aesthetic it's it's nice because they can suggest things or materials and it it's super helpful because um yeah we're just on the same page and can collaborate in that way um yeah more successfully I would say than like if you just worked with a, a workshop or somebody different each time Right. It's this longer term relationship that you get to build. That's really nice. Um, so it's, and it sounded like there is this element of surprise, right? Of like, you kind of, you send over this sample of what you think and then like you get, and then what, like you get a shipment back months later of like, of all the things. Is that what happens? <laughs> I guess that I would say the final sample, cause typically like uh. we'll, um, you know, prototype in something like, let's say they have that yarn, but not in the color we're going to use, like, but they have one cone of it available. We'll just sample in that rather than order what we need at that time, like just to do the prototype. And then when we see the final, we, we call it like the sales sample. Cause that's what we use to show all of the buyers. Um, once we see those, it's like, everything's been like correctly finished and it's in the right colors. And it's just, it feels mm -hmm. like Christmas. Cause you get this like box of all of your things. Um, that are super exciting. So we typically, it's like a three month lead time until you see the final pieces. Um, right. And then at that point we go into buying appointments for wholesale orders. And then 
you can make any like other, you know, maybe after showing it to people and everyone trying it on, you notice little like changes that would be better for production. So mm. there's typically some like other notes that we'll send along and then, and then yes, then we get the box with all of the things. <laughs> at, wow. Like, six it's really, that's so cool and wild. Like, especially these lead times. And I, I often think about actually, um, when you're like posting on Instagram or something that you're at like a buying show or you're, you're doing something that's, I'm always like, oh my God, she's doing, like, she has to be thinking like X number of seasons ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so wild to me, like this time scale of having to be this far ahead to get everything made in time for the actual season is so wild. It's kind of nice though, because like right now we're designing for spring 20 Mm -hmm. or have designed it and we like are putting those things into work, but it's nice to be in the season like we're in spring, summer. So you, right. I don't know. It would be really hard to think about um, fall, winter right now. Right. <laughs> You're like, I'm hot. Yeah. <laughs> Especially knitwear. <laughs> like, yeah. Alpaca. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that part of yeah. it's really nice. Um, but I, I think it really has warped my sense of like what the actual year is. Like by the time it's 2020, I'll, I'll be like, wait, it's been 2020 for <laughs> <laughs> so 2020 for basically two years while I've been designing this collection. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, that's so wild to me that that whole time scale thing. Like, and I guess I kind of operate that way with like with knitting because it just takes me like six months or something to finish a garment, and I almost always finish them in the wrong season, <laughs> like opposite season of what I'm supposed to. <laughs> so I guess that speaks to like my inability to for like pre plan in that way. Um, so, okay. So you, so you've got all the knitwear happening in like Peru and some happening in, in, uh, New York, but then fairly recently, like it's been in the last two years, right. That you've, you've brought on the, the Guatemala, like upcycled denim people. Is that right? Yeah. And it's also coincided with when I, when Jay came onto the team because she has a wrong wovens background. So um, we actually like just took a creativity quiz. And one of the questions was like, are you a ruler or a scribble? And I was like, oh, I'm definitely a scribble. And she's like, I'm definitely a ruler. So um, I think that that like just speaks to (laughs) that part of our process. Um, And yeah, I think just having like that injection of like another creative person and like being able to develop that part of things has been so great. Um, and then, yeah, finding the new denim project and just like, they're just amazing. I mean, they've been so cool to work with. Their project is so forward thinking and, um, yeah, we were lucky to get connected with a friend of theirs that has a workshop that he, you know, is outfitting with like solar panels and, it's actually mostly men that are the sewers, which is pretty cool. And it's just been such a good relationship, like from the beginning. So yeah, I just feel like it was really serendipitous that that all kind of happened around the same time. Can you describe the, what they, what the project is, um, for people who don't know what the new denim project is? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a lot of things. So, um, so yeah, they basically, it was a traditional like cotton, it was a traditional like fabric mill. Um, Mm. and then they, it's this crazy story where they were working with a a client, one of their biggest clients, and they ended up getting, losing that client in that order or, 
over another mill making the same product, but for one penny cheaper. And it was like their business was going to go under. It was like they were really in a, a tough spot. And um, the now creative direction, creative director, um, Ariane, she basically was like, listen, we're going to get to the point where people are going to be coming, to, like they're going to be wanting to work with us. And like, we'll have to kind of sort through like who it makes sense to work with. Like, I don't think that anyone that would drop us for one cent, like shouldn't be who we're partnering with. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've essentially like engineered the mill to do like two different things. So one is they're working with like a raw cotton and that's like deemed like too dirty to use. And they're, they're essentially like thoroughly cleaning it um, and like re-spinning it, like sorting the fiber, um, reweaving it into new fabric. They actually even like any of like the dirt and sediment that kind of sifts through like as they're cleaning it. They collect all of that and it becomes a compost for this like local wow. coffee um, place called De La Gente. And it's just, they're thinking about like every part of the process. Um, yeah. And then they also upcycle scraps and like dead stock, dead stock, like, um, or I'm sorry, upcycle scraps and garments into a new fiber. So they take all these like denim scraps, denim garments, and it's, essentially like broken down back into it's like fiber form and then also spun and woven into a new fabric yeah it's crazy (laughs) the coolest because it's like i i feel like this is finally where upcycling like has a chance because it's when you think about upcycling and like if you were to just google upcycled denim or something what you would find is like a bunch of silly like jeans that got caught up cut up into like tote bags or something which like no shade but just like that's not what I want I want you know I want it I, it's amazing to me that um it can be broken back down and then re like respun and then rewoven because that's I think where it's like oh, okay now we have this like new textile that actually is a textile that people would wear and you could turn into other garments that are really functional like that the the way that I think about upcycling from like the kind of traditional perspective of like get to the thrift store cut things up it's like that's probably mostly down downcycling like it's not or like barely recycling like it's not really adding value to the thing somebody maybe could have used the garment in its full form as is and would have gotten use value out of it but the fact that you can actually really deeply add value that's really exciting I think and I mean going back to that thing earlier where you know I've tried to you know work with our yarn mills to remove a synthetic and like add something else, but it's been cost prohibitive. The cool thing about what they're doing is it's not cost prohibitive. Like it's a really Mm -hmm. affordable fabric because it's all materials that we're going to go to waste. So I think that's like when I, I don't know, when I talk to other people that are working at corporate jobs and they really want to try and inject like sustainability into their systems, like the big barrier they come up with is, Oh, but this is going to be like a cost prohibitive fabric or technology or whatever it is and Mm -hmm. it's really cool to see solutions where you could present that to you know whatever large company and it has a chance you know yeah that's awesome because like and that's I think that that's been cool too to see um like I've noticed that reflected in the pricing of the garments that you're making 
with that fabric where it's like, oh, this is like, this is a price, this is a price point that it feels like comparable to people who are producing um, clothing in like a less transparent and less perhaps like ethical way, you know, air quotes, air quotes. But like, yeah, it's exciting to see that as a, because that's the thing I think about a ton with, with slow fashion is that's like, oh, there's so many things that I would love to buy, but just like can't, I'm not in the position to, you know, ongoingly afford things like that. Um, yeah. Which I struggle with a lot is mm. it's, it shouldn't be cost prohibitive and it feels pretty shitty when it is. So I think that having, and that's something really nice about also adding wovens, like knits just take a lot more development and it's, they're just more, it's more manual labor in general. So mm-hmm. um, it's really cool to add something in where, yeah, it's like in the hundred dollar range and at least, yeah. Right. Which is what you would pay for like a fast fashion piece of clothing anyway. Like there are so many companies who are doing really shitty things that are charging at least that. And it's nice. It's so nice to know that. Yeah. It's nice to be able to be like, oh, cool. This is a, this is an object that I know has been made in this really thoughtful way. And yeah, yeah, not going to like break your bank. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's something you could save up for over the course of like a few months, not like years. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like a realistic thing to purchase. Well, and the thing the thing too that's so hard about it is like there these smaller runs and batches that people do, like that's so great because there's a lot of like waste reduction in that, but it's also so difficult because if you're a person who needs to save over a period of a number of months to be able to buy the thing, it's it's like gone by the time you're like you're ready to purchase it. I'm like, ah dang, I missed out again. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that's a hard one I mean I think it's kind of cool to see things like um after pay and various like various kind of services because you guys introduced that recently right uh, we do after pay um yeah. and I do think that that's a nice option um just to if you are worried about it going away and it's something you definitely know that you want to add to your wardrobe then right. you can pay it over over time but um right yeah, ideally it's like not it would be something that it wouldn't be too cost prohibitive to begin with. Right. I wonder too with the cuz I was thinking about that post that you made about like investing in clothing and and like um maybe buying something from a thrift store that you like it was 30 bucks but you got like a couple wears out of it or something. I wonder if like with something like Afterpay or some equivalent service if if maybe there could be like a mental shift for people as they wear the object to kind of begin to be like oh right I wore it six times this month and I paid thirty dollars this month so it was five dollars per wear like I wonder if that maybe could be like an unintended consequence of those sorts of services existing is that people might then transition their thinking around it I don't know I'm literally this literally just came to me just now (laughs) Oh gosh. I think so. I think that um even just seeing that number, like what this looks like over four installments, kind of gets your your brain thinking in that way. Like right. oh, this is um thirty dollars over four payments. Like would I yeah. What does that mean? Like how many times am I gonna wear it? Right. I guess it's a little bit like if you had a subscription to like a yoga class or whatever and you're like, okay, it's fifty bucks, but if I go six times, then it's worth it. <laughs> 
That's interesting. I actually, I really hadn't thought about that before. Like I'd thought about how it's cool that that exists. And then I also wondered about the kind of like, um, the, the flip side of that being like maybe a problem that people are then going to buy things that they like, then not really think that hard about whether they need the thing because they can like, Oh, it's fine. I'll just pay it back later. <laughs> but like, I do think, I think that that actually is like an interesting, positive unintended consequence potentially. So that's kind of cool. I'd love to hear kind of what sort of things you're you're working on right now and you're, what you're what you're feeling excited about. I know there's a lot going on for you so feel free to share whatever is most exciting or share all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like in terms of most exciting um something kind of going back to what you were saying about really loving something and then it's gone and so when you're trying to save up for it it's it's really challenging cuz then the seasons move so quickly or, you know, whatever, um, whatever's happening, but we're in discussion and trying to work on having more of like a core collection. So uh-huh. I think that for me is going to be really exciting because it can open up a lot of opportunity for us to do like more in depth, like fit guides, like photographing it on a lot of different women, um, and men. And, uh, also just, you know, potential collaborations with other artists. Like if we're always going to offer our utility jumpsuit and natural, then we could send like five of those to a natural dyer friend and have her do. Cool. I, I'm very excited about that. Um, I think that would probably be rolling out like in January next year. Um, wow. That's like soon. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, that is sort of on the horizon. Um and then we're doing, I mean, this is kind of maybe boring stuff, but we're like working on a website update, like to also make things um, kind of like more dynamic and interactive and something I really like about, like we were discussing um, sites like Everlane, where you can see a garment on someone who's like five, six and like 160 pounds, but then you can click another um, like height and measurement. Cause for me, when I'm shopping, I'm five, two. And if I see somebody wearing a garment and they're like 5'10". I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to look on me. Like, so that's something that we're like, we're working on for this fall. Um, and then, yeah, we're doing a trunk show in Barcelona, which I'm very excited about. Um, that's going to be in September. Uh, we're going out to, um, Paris for market week and Mm -hmm. squeezing in like a little, like, exploration vacation time and then this trunk show um but yeah I think kind of just like everything sort of expanding and growing like expanding on the pieces we're doing with new denim project and the workshop um and yeah just like staying alive (laughs) like (laughs) yes 100% that's super exciting I think they um I am personally, I am selfishly personally very excited about the idea of a core collection because like there, I mean, I've loved everything you've made for years and years. And there's always been the like, can't pull the trigger, like to actually buy the thing or like by the time I'm ready, it's gone or, you know, so it's exciting to me to think about, um, I think about that happening. And I feel like, uh, obvi- like the wovens are so wonderful and beautiful. And I'm so glad that, that that's happening too. But something that I think, and I just want to say to you is that, um, there is very little, knitwear that I see that I'm like, yep, yes, yes. There's so little amazing that I've seen at least. There's so, I don't often come across amazing knitwear. And I just, from a personal, like, it's something I have so appreciated and admired you for, for so, so long. 
Um, and just how every season you consistently bring out more amazing knitwear that it feels really wearable, but feels also like fashion forward, but feels also basic, like all of these things and consistently amazing, amazing fibers where like anytime that I look at another company, they're like, Oh, it's 98% this and 2% polyamide or whatever. And I look at your fibers. I'm like, this is silk alpaca. Like what the fuck? That's amazing. So this is my slightly fangirl moment just to say that like, have been stunned, completely stunned for for literal years, but just really, really appreciate the work that you do. Thanks, dude. Same. Thanks. I mean, feeling is mutual. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's yeah, it's been really, really rad to get to to get to see you a few times, but also to bring you on and get to get to do a whole podcast. Yeah, no, this has been really fun. I normally get very nervous for these things, but it's been very easy. So. Good. I'm glad. I actually felt nervous yesterday, like thinking about it. I, I was like, I don't know why I feel nervous. I know Mandy, like we're pals. This is going to be fine. <laughs> it's just hard to, yeah, <laughs> make yourself sound articulate and also have a casual conversation. <laughs> totally, totally. And then I'm like, oh, tell me about production. Like, tell me about all these things. No, I know it's a lot, but yeah. Go into like the nitty gritty, which would just get super boring, but yeah. I mean, I honestly don't think that would be boring. <laughs> we could we could do a follow-up conversation in which we talk about the literal nitty-gritty, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. It was so nice to catch up with you. Mm-hmm.